Chapter Twenty Three of Will Warburton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Will Warburton by George Gissing. Chapter Twenty Three. Was he to be a grocer for the rest of his life? This question, which at first scarcely occurred to him, absorbed as he was in the problem of money-earning for immediate needs, at length began to press and worry. Of course he had meant nothing of the kind. His imagination had seen in the shop a temporary expedient. He had not troubled to pursue the ultimate probabilities of the life that lay before him, but contented himself with the vague assurance of his hopeful temper. Yet where was the way out? To save money, to accumulate sufficient capital for his release, was an impossibility, at all events within any reasonable time. And for what windfall could he look? Sherwood's ten thousand pounds hovered in his memory, but no more substantial than any fairy tale. No man living, it seemed to him, had less chance of being signally favoured by fortune. He had donned his apron, and aproned he must remain." Suppose, then, he so far succeeded in his business as to make a little more than the household at St. Neot's required. Suppose it became practicable to, well, say, to think of marriage, of course on the most modest basis. Could he quite see himself offering to the girl he chose the hand and heart of a grocer? He laughed. It was well to laugh. Merriment is the great digestive and an unspeakable boon to the man capable of it in all but every situation. But what if she also laughed, and not in the sympathetic way? Worse still, what if she could not laugh, but looked wretchedly embarrassed, confused, shamed? That would be a crisis it needed some philosophy to contemplate. For the present, common sense made it rigorously plain to him that the less he thought of these things, the better. He had not a penny to spare. Only by exercising an economy which in the old days would have appalled him could he send his mother and sister an annual sum just sufficient to their needs. He who scorned and loathed all kinds of parsimony had learnt to cut down his expenditure at every possible point. He still smoked his pipe. He bought newspapers. He granted himself an excursion of the cheapest, on fine Sundays. But these surely were necessities of life. In food and clothing and the common expenses of a civilised man, he pinched remorselessly. There was no choice. His lodgings cost him very little. But Mrs. Wick, whose profound suspiciousness was allied with unperfect honesty, now and then made paltry overcharges in her bill, and he was angry with himself for his want of courage to resist them. It meant only a shilling or two, but retail trade had taught him the importance of shillings. He had to remind himself that, if he was poor, his landlady was poorer still, and that in cheating him she did but follow the traditions of her class. To debate an excess of sixpence for paraffin, of ninepence for bacon, would have made him flush and grind his teeth for hours afterwards. But he noticed the effect upon himself of the new habit of niggardliness. How it disposed him to acerbity of temper. 
no matter how pure the motive, a man cannot devote his days to squeezing out pecuniary profits without some moral detriment. Formerly this woman, Mrs. Wick, with her gimlet eyes and her leech lips, with her spyings and eavesdroppings, with her sour civility, her stinted discharge of obligations, her pilferings and mendacities, would have rather amused him than annoyed him. Poor creature, isn't it a miserable as well as a sordid life? Let her have her pickings, however illegitimate, and much good may they do her. Now he too often found himself regarding her with something like animosity, whereby, to be sure, he brought himself to the woman's level. Was it not a struggle between him and her for a share of life's poorest comforts? When he looked at it in that light, his cheeks were hot. A tradesman must harden himself. Why, in the early months, it cost him a wrench somewhere to take coppers at the counter from very poor folk, who perhaps made up the odd halfpenny in farthings, and looked at the coins reluctantly as they laid them down. More than once, he said, Oh, never mind the halfpenny, and was met with a look, not of gratitude, but of blank amazement. Alchin happened to be a witness of one such incident, and, in the first moment of privacy, ventured a respectful, yet a most energetic, protest. "'It's a kindness of your art, sir, and if anybody knows how much of that you have, I'm sure it's me, and I ought to be the last to find fault with it. But that'll never do behind the counter, sir, never. Why, just think, the profit on what that woman bought was just three farthings.' He detailed the computation. And there, you've been and given her a whole halfpenny, so that you've only one blessed farthing over on the whole transaction. That ain't business, sir. That's charity. And Jollyman's ain't a charitable institution. You really must not, sir. It's unjust to yourself. And Will, with an uneasy shrug, admitted his folly. But he was ashamed to the core. Only in the second half year did he really accustom himself to disregard a customer's poverty. He had thought the thing out, faced all its most sordid aspects. Yes, he was fighting with his people for daily bread. He and his could live only if his three farthings of profit were plucked out of that toil-worn hand of charwoman or sempstress. Accept the necessity and think no more of it. He was a man behind the counter, he saw face to face the people who supported him. With this exception, had not things been just the same when he sat in the counting-house at the sugar refinery? It was an unpleasant truth, which appearances had formerly veiled from him. With the beginning of his second winter came a new anxiety, a new source of bitter and degrading reflections. At no more than five minutes' walk away, another grocer started business. Happily no great capitalist, but to all appearances a man of enterprise who knew what he was about. Morning and evening, Warburton passed the new shop and felt his very soul turn sour in the thought that he must do what in him lay to prevent that man from gaining custom. If he could make his business a failure, destroy all his hopes, so much the better. With Alchin, he held long and eager conferences, the robust assistant was, of course, troubled by no scruples. He warmed to the combat, 
chuckled over each good idea for the enemy's defeat. Every nerve must be strained for the great Christmas engagement. As much money as possible must be spent in making a brave show. And it was only by pausing every now and then to remember why he stood here, in what cause he was so debasing the manner of his life, that Warburton could find strength to go through such a trial of body and of spirit. When, the Christmas fight well over, with manifest triumph on his side, he went down for a couple of days to St Neots, once more he had his reward. But the struggle was telling upon his health. It showed in his face, in his bearing. Mother and sister spoke uneasily of a change they noticed. Surely he was working too hard. What did he mean by taking no summer holiday? Will laughed. Business, business. A good deal to do at first, you know. Things will be smoother next year. And the comfort, the quiet, the simple contentment of that little house by the ooze sent him back to Fulham Road, once more resigned, courageous. Naturally, he sometimes contrasted his own sordid existence with the unforeseen success which had made such changes in the life of Norbert Franks. It was more than three months since he and Franks had met when, one day early in January, he received a note from the artist. "'What has become of you? I haven't had a chance of getting your way, work and social foolery. Could you come and lunch with me here on Sunday, alone, like the old days? I have a portrait to show you.' So, on Sunday, Warburton went to his friend's new studio, which was in the Holland Park region. Formerly, it was always he who played the host, and he did not like this change of positions. But Franks, however sensible of his good luck, and inclined at times to take himself rather seriously, had no touch of the snob in his temper. When with him, Will generally lost sight of unpleasant things in good-natured amusement. Today, however, grocerdom lay heavily on his soul. On the return journey from St. Neots, he had caught a cold, and a week of sore throat behind the counter, a week, too, of quarrel with a wholesale house which had been cheating him, left his nerves in a bad state. For reply to the artist's cordial greeting, he could only growl inarticulately. "'Out of sorts?' asked the other, as they entered the large, well-warmed studio. "'You look rather bad.' "'Leave me alone.' muttered Warburton. All right, sit down here and thaw yourself. But Will's eye had fallen on a great canvas, showing the portrait of a brilliant lady who reclined at ease and caressed the head of a great deer hound. He went and stood before it. Who's that? Lady Caroline. I told you about her. Don't you think it's rather good? Yes, and for that very reason I'm afraid it's bad. The artist laughed. That's good satire on the critics. When anything strikes them as good, by a new man, that is, they're ashamed to say so, just because they never dare trust their own judgment. But it is good, Warburton, uncommonly good. If there's a weak point, it's doggy. I can't come the Landseer. Still, you can see it's meant for a doggy, eh? I guessed it, replied Will, warming his hands. Lady Caroline is superb, went on Franks, standing before the canvas, head aside and hands in his pocket. This is my specialty, old boy. 
Lovely woman made yet lovelier, without loss of likeness. She'll be the fury of the next academy. See that something in the eyes, Warburton? Don't know how to call it. My enemies call it claptrap. But they can't do the trick, my boy. They can't do it. They'd give the end of their noses if they could. He laughed gaily, boyishly. How well he was looking! Warburton, having glanced at him, smiled with a surly kindness. All you're doing, you know, pursued Franks, who had caught the look and the smile. You've made me. But for you I should have gone to the devil. I was saying so yesterday to the crosses. The crosses? Will had sharply turned his head with a curious surprise. Don't you remember the crosses? said Franks, smiling with a certain embarrassment. Rosamond's friends at Wallam Green. I met them by chance not long ago, and they wanted me to go and see them. The old lady's a bore, but she can be agreeable when she likes. The girl's rather clever, does pictures for children's books, you know. She seems to be getting on better lately, but they are wretchedly poor. I was saying to them, oh, oh, but that reminds me of something else. You haven't seen the pomfrets lately? No. Then you don't know that Mr. Elvin's dead? No. He died a month ago, over there in the south of France. Rosamond has gone back to Egypt to stay with that friend of hers at Cairo. Mrs. Pomfret hints to me that the girls will have to find a way of earning their living. Elvin has left practically nothing. I wonder whether... He smiled and broke off. Whether what? asked the listener. Oh, nothing. What's the time? Whether what? repeated Warburton savagely. Well, whether Rosamond doesn't a little regret? Do you? asked Will, without looking round. I? Not for a moment, my dear boy. She did me the greatest possible kindness. Only you even did me a greater. At this moment I should have been cursing and smoking cheap tobacco in Battersea, unless I had got sick of it all and done the hick jacet business, a strong probability. Never did a girl behave more sensibly. Some day I hope to tell her so. Of course, when she has married somebody else. Then I'll paint her portrait and make her the envy of a season. By Jove, I will. Splendid subject she'd be. When I think of that beastly so-called portrait that I put my foot through the day I was in hell. Queer how one develops all at a jump. Two years ago I could no more paint a woman's portrait than I could build a cathedral. I caught the trick in the slummer, but didn't see all it meant till Blackstaff asked me to paint Lady Rocket. Rosamond ought to have given me the sack when she saw that daub, meant for her. Good little girl. She held as long as she could. Oh, I'll paint her divinely one of these days. The soft humming of a gong summoned them to another room where lunch was ready. Never had Warburton shown such lack of genial humour at his friend's table. He ate mechanically and spoke hardly at all. Little by little, Franks felt the depressing effect of this companionship. When they returned to the studio, to smoke by the fireside, only a casual word broke the cheerless silence. I oughtn't to have come today, said Will at length, half apologetically. I feel like a bear with a sore head. I think I'm going. Shall I come and see you some evening? asked the other in his friendliest tone. No, I mean not just yet. I'll write and ask you and Will went out into the frosty gloom.
End of chapter 23